If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Exodus 32. We'll be in verses 15 through 35 this morning. Before we read and work through our passage for this morning, just uh, reflecting on the, the, well, all of the songs really that we've sung, but in particular the last one, uh, Only a Holy God. And we're going to be talking today, continuing on this idea of, uh, of God's wrath uh, concerning sin and yet a wrath that he withholds or does not pour out on his people. And one of the things that's, that's interesting in the scriptures uh, is that we tend to view um, God's holiness in um, a one-dimensional way. Like we, we see and interpret God's holiness in terms of a, a moral or ethical purity. But to, it's important for us to recognize that the holiness of God is always pointing us not just to his moral and ethical purity, but just to his complete otherness. He's just simply not like anyone or anything else. He's in a category all by himself. And one of the ways, paradoxically, that God shows that he is holy is by not destroying his people. I think of God's holiness and think, because God is holy, he must pour out his wrath. But there are passages of Scripture that say, in fact, because God is holy, he will not pour out his wrath. Now that takes a lot of time and reflection and meditation on. But uniquely, that is a promise and an aspect of God's holiness that is reserved only for his people, only for us. Even in the Old Testament, there is a passage, I believe it's in Hosea, can't remember, so if I've got it wrong, please forgive me, where, where the Lord says to his people who are committing spiritual adultery, I, the Holy One, I am the Holy One in your midst, therefore, you are not destroyed. I am the Holy One in your midst, therefore, because I am holy, because I am different, where every other God would come and destroy you because you're my people, what makes me different is that I don't destroy you. People, that is our hope. That is our confidence. That God is just completely different and other than we could possibly hope or imagine. Exodus 32, verses 15 through 35 Here's what I'd like for you to do as we read this passage. Last week in verses 1 through 14, we looked at the fact that in a blatant act of, uh, of covenant breaking and infidelity, God's people, before they had even left Sinai where he had gathered them, had already broken covenant with him, and the Lord's anger burned over that covenant violation over that covenant breaking but that Moses interceding for the people an intercessor a mediator by the way that God himself raised up on behalf of the people pleaded for the Lord to withhold his anger not to pour out his burning anger on the people and God relented all right here's what I'd like for you to consider as we read this passage 
you could read verses 1 through 14. By the time you get down to verse 14, when we read that the Lord relented about the harm which he, would, which he said he would do to his people as being an, indicate, an indication that all thing, everything is fine now. Hunky-dory. We're good to go. But as we read verses 15 through 35, I want you to listen and consider that as the story continues to play out, it becomes fairly evident that things have not yet been put to rights. That God's anger and wrath over his people's sin is still a pressing concern that has to be dealt with. Exodus 32, 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. But Moses said, It's not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat but the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. By the way, just a, a brief pause there, this is probably not Moses in a fit of rage, losing control. This is probably symbolic. He throws and smashes the tablets as a way to symbolize the fact that the covenant has been broken, that they have broken covenant with God, that covenant that was represented by the Ten Commandments. Verse 20, He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. Still speaking to the Levites there. Verse 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps 
I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord struck the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, in the joy and comfort that is ours in Christ, by your Holy Spirit, according to the grace that you have given us, please let us never lose sight of the fact that you are a holy God, that you are holy in your love, that you are holy in your justice, holy in compassion, holy in judgment, and that to set our mind or our gaze on any one element or aspect of your character to the exclusion of the others is to make you less in our own minds than what you truly are and what you deserve to be worshipped for. Help us to see, Father, how good and great you are and how good and great you are for giving us Jesus. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. So verses 1 through 14 in chapter 32 was demonstrating in narrative form or in story form the need that we have as God's people for his wrath to be turned away from us. That our sins deserve and even demand God's righteous anger being poured out. But that the only way that we avoid that pouring out of God's anger is that he has provided for us a mediator someone to intercede for us, namely his own son, Jesus Christ, who keeps the just anger of God for sin at bay. What verses 15 through following demonstrate is that we not only need, what God's people need, is not merely the withholding of God's anger. They need even more than that. They need a full pardon. In God's case, we have the you know, little turns of phrase that we like to use today in social and political settings, right? Justice delayed is justice denied, you know, some such thing like that. In a passage like this, one of the things that we're being brought to realize is that in God's case, for judgment to be delayed does not mean that judgment is being denied. For God to restrain his wrath is not to say that God's wrath has been satisfied. That's part of what this passage goes to point out and what it goes to show us, that what we need, what we desperately need, is not just for God to temporarily suspend his judgment, 
but to give us a full and clear pardon so that we no longer have to fear God's judgment being held over our heads anymore. Let me just say a word to you. If you happen to be here this morning, or if later on you may hear audio, or you're watching on a live stream, you may not actually know that you have that full pardon that only comes from God through Christ by His Spirit. But you look around at your life and you think that your life is going pretty well, so really how upset could God possibly be? That is a foolish and destructive way to think. You don't need to turn there, but listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7-9. through 9. Peter says, but by his word, that is God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If God in his grace and mercy has withheld his anger from you, it is sheer mercy. So long as you have not been made right with him because of this, the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, that judgment may not be upon you right now, but it hangs over your head, waiting for the day in which God will judge this world. But Christians, the, the joy and the hope that is ours, even in a passage like this that is sobering, that is at times even disconcerting, is that what we really need to know for certain, that we no longer stand and live and breathe and sleep under the shadow of God's impending doom, what we need to make sure that we're not there any longer has already been given to us in Christ. We know, we, those of us who belong to Christ, you and I know that we can rest our heads on our pillows this evening and know that there is no anger that God holds against us. You cannot buy that kind of peace. You cannot earn that kind of security. That is a gift of grace and mercy. And one of the reasons that we have a passage like this is to show us that we do, in fact, need the restraining of God's anger, but also the satisfaction of it. We need not only his judgment to be suspended, but we need a full pardon so that we know that we will no longer face it. So three things that we want to try to do here in this passage. Number one, we want to recognize that we need more than any mere man can provide. Number two, we need 
because God demands it, calls for it, a pure devotion to the Lord. And number three, ultimately, we need a full pardon for our sins. We need more than any man can provide. We need a pure devotion to the Lord, and we need a full pardon for our sins. If you picked up there on a bit of repetition, we need, we need, we need. Right? Your heart ought to be answering back by the Spirit, God has given, God has given, God has given. Number one, we need more than any mere man can provide. Look at verses 21 through 24. There has been, even before we get to this passage, verses 15 and following, there has been an implicit contrast between Aaron and Moses, but it just finally comes to the forefront in this passage. So in verses 1 through 14, you have Moses meeting with God up on the mountain, hearing and responding to God's word, whereas Aaron, in contrast, is down below with the people, hearing and responding to their word. Two very different things going on between the two. But then when Moses begins to make his way down the mountain and now rejoins the people for a moment and comes into dialogue with Aaron, now what was just a hint of a contrast between the two men, now as they stand side by side in conversation with one another, we are meant to see a stark contrast between Aaron and Moses. So once again, verses 21 through 24, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And then Aaron rehearses what had happened, but closes it off by saying, yeah, I just took the gold, threw it in the fire, and boom, all of a sudden, a golden cow. This contrast that we have between Aaron and Moses, is in very clear ways highlighted by putting the stress on what Aaron has done. You see in verse 21 when Moses, the very first words that are recorded that Moses speaks to the people when he comes down from the mountain is an address to Aaron. And he asks Aaron what has happened Notice how he frames it in verse 21. What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Who does Moses assign culpability to for the people's idolatry? Aaron. Does that mean that the people are not responsible, that they're not culpable? No, they certainly are, and Moses knows that, and he'll pray accordingly by the time we get to the end of the passage. But Moses speaks directly to Aaron and says, you have brought this great sin on this people. Were it not for you, this may not have happened. And then just so that we know that this is not just Moses' opinion... Right? He's just irritated with his brother, and brothers are going to fight and scrap. 
when you get to the end of chapter 32, look at the way that the story is summed up from God's point of view. In verse 35, Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Aaron is being put to stand in front of the people because of their sin. Because he led them into sin. Who led them into sin? Well, Aaron did. Who is Aaron, though? Aaron is the priest. The last man on the planet who should be leading God's people into open idolatry and rebellion is the priest. And this priest that God picked out, that God assigned, is the one who is said to be responsible for leading the people into sin. It's even worse than that. When, when Aaron has an opportunity to give an account for himself, an account for the people, he throws the people under the bus. Come on, Moses. You, of all people, you know what these people are like. They're just evil people. Contrast that with what we just saw in verses 1 through 14 with Moses. Moses hears what the people have done, and does Moses say, you know what, Lord, you're right. They're just evil people. Go ahead. They deserve it. Strike them. Smite them. Snuff them out. Moses hears of the evil and wickedness of God's people, and it drives him to plead on their behalf. Aaron just points out highlights, the sin and the corruption of the people, all while trying to save himself. I don't, know, I don't really know what happened, Moses. One thing you know, the people are asking for this. We throw a bunch of stuff into the fire. Idol shows up. I was beyond my control. Is this the best that God can give to his people? Aaron? You say, oh, no, 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 that's not the best that he can give his people because he gave them not only Aaron, he gave them Moses. Well, yes, that's true. Moses definitely looks better than Aaron in this passage. But did you, you hear what happened when Moses returns to the Lord and he begins to plead again on behalf of the people? Ask for the Lord to pardon them and says, if you're not willing to pardon them, take me instead and what does the Lord say? No. See, here's the thing. Aaron shows himself in many ways to be unwilling to meet the task that he's been given. He, he strays just like the people, and the people follow along with him. He leads them into sin. Even when Moses wants to be the one to save his people, he can't do it. He may be willing, but he is not able. Is Moses the best that God can give to his people? 
Edgewood, is Aaron or Moses the best that God can give to his people? No. He's given us Jesus. Jesus is the one man who says, come and follow me. Anyone who follows me will not, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is better than Aaron and better than Moses because not only is he willing to lead us and guide us and protect us and keep us, he is able to do it. At the end of the day, the gift of Christ to us is the settled confidence and assurance that while every other person that we know in this world will fail us, will lead us astray, will not hold up to the very ideals that they preach to us, Jesus never will. My life will never, never go wrong for following him and neither will yours. So we need someone better than Aaron. We need someone even better than Moses. And praise God, we have that person in Jesus Christ. Number two, we need a pure devotion to the Lord. Look at verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, here again, for who had let them go out of control? Aaron had let them go out of control to be a derision among their enemies then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword on his thigh, go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp, kill. Every man his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did so. And then we're told in verse 29 that for that act, God intends to, to give or grant a blessing to the Levites who have just slaughtered 3,000 people. What is going on here? Well, number one, however you understand this portion of the story, however you envision it happening in your mind, one of the things that you cannot do is try to assign responsibility for this act to anyone but the Lord. This is God's justice, partial justice, no less. God's justice being meted out to the people. What does Moses say when the Levites come to him? Thus says the Lord. The Lord directs the Levites to go through the camp and to purge the camp of the rebels. It's not only because for rebelling against your king, 
you deserve death. You, in fact, do. It's not only because you knowing and willfully violate or break his command. But added to that, that's first and foremost, right? That's David in Psalm 51, like we read this morning, against you and you only have I sinned. Does David mean that he hasn't sinned against anyone else in his adultery with Bathsheba or the murder of her husband? Certainly not. What it means, though, is that if, first and foremost, this is not a a sin against God, it's ultimately not a sin against anyone else. First and foremost, their idolatry is an act of disobedience, a rebellion against God that deserves justice. But along with that act of disobedience is also the fact that we're told in verse 25 that they had become a derision among their enemies. Derision, right? A mockery, an insult, a joke. Actually, the the word that shows up here only shows up, well, in in the root word. I think it only shows up twice in the Old Testament. The only other time that it shows up is in Job, where it talks about hearing something by a whisper. I imagine then that part of what's going on here is, is the picture of, because of what the people have done, other people are talking about them. Right? You say, hey, so what? They deserve to be talked about. Yes, 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 maybe so, but remember, these are not just any people. These are God's people. What happens when word gets back to the Egyptians? Hey, do you hear what happened to Israel at the mountain? You hear what they did? Oh, yeah, God's special people, huh? so holy, they're just like the rest of us, right? And you can't begin to lay those charges at God's people without ultimately laying charges against God because God has already declared that he is going to make his people holy. Is God not able to do that? You see how this works? They disobey God but they also bring shame and disrepute on God and on the reputation of God's people. Therefore, that must be dealt with. Another way in which the seriousness of this crime is highlighted is by the language that Moses uses when he calls the people to himself. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Do you you hear that? In other words, if you don't come to Moses, what does that suggest about you? Maybe you're not for the Lord. And when Moses calls for those who are for the Lord or on the Lord's side to come and stand beside him, the Levites come. And the Levites then are commissioned to go through and without discrimination, without partiality, to be an instrument of God's judgment among his own people. 3,000 die on the spot. Does God care any less about his reputation and the reputation of his people today? Right, we, we read this, and the easy way to do this is say, whew, glad I'm not in the Old Testament. 
right? We're New Testament people, age of grace, hallelujah. Right? In fact, if we're to read the scriptures well, because, of what God, because God has revealed more in the New Covenant era, because he has done more in the New Covenant, because he has given his people more resources and gifts in the New Covenant, the stakes are higher than what they were in the Old Testament, not lower. So that when you read in passages like Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says, if we go on sinning willfully, there is a terrifying expectation of judgment. And he rounds off that warning by saying, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sin is a big deal. Sin is an especially big deal when it is tolerated and coaxed and entertained among God's people who have been bought out from that mess. Look with me at a couple passages. Look at what Jesus himself says. We could go to Paul. We could go to 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is talking about exercising authority and judgment in the church to separate the immoral brother, to put him out of the midst. But listen, just Jesus' own words. Start in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we'll start at 15. I'll talk a little bit more about this, about this issue of church discipline in the evening service tonight. If you want to come back and you want to hear us expound on this a little bit more. But Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, he doesn't turn from the sin. He doesn't confess it. He doesn't repent, in other words. Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you, church, bind on earth, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Don't read more into this passage than what is there. We're not talking about a church demanding sinless perfection. If that were the case, there would be no church, at least not today. But in those cases in which there is in the church, either by a person or a group of people in the church, any knowing, willful, 
unrepentant sin, that kind of sin and person must be dealt with. Because Jesus would have us understand that a person who is living in known sin, unwilling to repent and turn from it, is showing himself not to truly belong to the people of God. He is no longer for the Lord. He's for his sin. Put him out. Turn back just a few pages. Matthew chapter 10. And look at what Jesus says in verses 34 through 37. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Listen, Edgewood, the reason that we ought to care about sin is because we care about Christ. The reason we ought to kill sin is because we know that Christ was killed himself for that sin. And to be unwilling to confront sin that is hardening, hardening or persisting or metastasizing in the body for the sake of politeness or because of family ties or because of friendships or business associates is to say that I prize this person or that thing more than I prize Christ. And if God's people are not willing to lose everything in order to gain Christ, they will find that they do not have Christ. We need more, or we need a pure devotion to the Lord. And hear me on this. The Lord has given us hearts of pure devotion to him by the work of his spirit in regeneration. We don't have to go looking for that kind of heart. He has given it to us already. All the more reason that it becomes shocking when someone who claims to be a follower of Christ does not follow Christ in renouncing his sin. Because the new covenant promises to write his laws on our hearts so that we would have hearts that desire to obey. Number three. Ultimately, what we need is a full pardon for our sins. 
we've already seen hinted at that while God's wrath may be suspended, it has not been satisfied. If God's wrath were satisfied at the people's sin, there would have been no need for the Levites to go through and to execute 3,000 people. Clearly, though, by the time we get to Moses returning to the Lord to plead, we know without a question that the satisfaction of God's wrath has not been granted yet or is not assured. Because listen to what Moses says. When he goes up to meet with the Lord, he says, this people, verse 31, has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will, there it is, forgive their sin. In other words, at this present time, Moses and the people do not have God's forgiveness for their rebellion. That's what he's asking for. We need you to turn your wrath away, but in order for that wrath really to be removed, what we desperately need is for you to forgive. People, please don't miss how Moses frames this plea to the Lord. Right? English abhors repetition in writing. We like variety, but, but oftentimes in the Old Testament, repetition is one of the ways that you make your point and drive it home. Listen, listen to the way eight times in verses 31 through 35 you have the word sin or sinned being used eight times. Listen to how it would sound. Verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord, or I'm sorry, in verse 30, he says to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. Now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. A lot of our English versions say they have committed a great sin. It's actually they have sinned a great sin and they've made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will, verse 32, forgive their sin. Verse 33, the Lord says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. And then again in verse 34, I will punish them for their sin. These people have sinned a great sin. Listen, with all the confidence in the world, God's people have been given access to the throne room to cry out for grace and mercy, even in the midst of our sin. We ought to take advantage of that. We have been given a faithful and merciful high priest who hears our prayers, who takes not only our prayers, but adds to them his own prayers. And the spirit within us cries out with groanings too deep for words, all of those things. But people, do not cheapen do not cheapen the price that was paid for your sin and the continuing guarantee of forgiveness by not calling sin, sin. Don't call it a mistake. Don't call it weakness. Don't call it a foible. Name it. 
against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So long as you go to the Lord, if you and I go to the Lord and all that we're willing to do because we can't bear to actually confess the fact that we have committed sin and all we're bringing to the Lord is a little imperfection or a little quirk of our temperament or personality in the way that we present it to him, you will never know that you have really been granted experientially full cleansing forgiveness because you haven't named that sin for what it is. Go to God and say, I am a great sinner and I have a greater Savior. The depth of our sin when taken to the Lord makes Christ look great. Because every time that we are cleansed from our sin, when we confess to the Lord, Christ shows the beauty of his character, the constancy of his love for his people, and the faithfulness to his word, that everyone who comes to him, he will never turn out. And this is why ultimately, the only kind of pardon that we can find that actually satisfies the just demands of God has to come from someone other than Moses. Because even when Moses wants to be the one to pay for the sin, to act as substitute, he can't do it. Our sin and the sin of God's people across time is so deep and is so great and is so offensive that nothing less than the body of God himself could hope to be a sacrifice to adequately pay for our sin. God had to take to himself a body that could be given to pay for our sin. It took God's body and God's blood in order to give us, to purchase for us pardon. Nobody, no Moses, no Aaron, no pastor, no elder, no pope, no saintly grandparent can ever give that to you outside of Jesus Christ. And so we close up here, now getting ready to go to the Lord's table to say that what we celebrate together as we take this meal, this sign, is that people who are in desperate need of God's wrath being turned away from them and satisfied by a full and perfect payment, we are those people because we have been given Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And over in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we all come acknowledging that apart from Jesus Christ, we are children of wrath by nature, by our very nature. So what is it that has enabled us to come to this feast today? It's because the work of God and pouring out his just wrath upon his son was satisfied. And it's because the redemption, the pouring out of the blood of the Son of God that Jesus does as he goes to the cross for our sin, taking all of our sin that's been laid upon him, was sufficient. We get to come today to this table, feasting and celebrating. We get to come humbled by our sin, seeing what it took for our sin to be dealt with. But we get to come emboldened because we see what God did to take care of our sin that in love he would send his son to die for us. The death of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Do we believe that it is sufficient to deal with and cover our sins so that he will remember our sins no more against us because he's laid them upon his son and they've been dealt with on the cross? So as we come eating and drinking today, we are reminding ourselves as we eat and drink of the sufficiency of Christ and the work that he has done. And so we want to come not in ourselves and not in our name and not in our righteousness and not in our morality, but come in all of our sin and all of our shame, remembering that it's all been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and ultimately his resurrection. So as we partake of this today, I would encourage you, if you are not a believer, if you have not turned from sin, just as the elements pass by, to let that pass by you. And if you are a believer, if you've, you're someone who, who has turned to put faith in Jesus Christ, but maybe have not followed the Lord yet in obedience and baptism, we would also ask that these elements would pass by. But this is why. It is not for your shame or any embarrassment, and you don't need to feel that at all. What we simply want is we actually want to be praying for you, that the Lord would lead you and guide you to walk in obedience to him, whether it's walking in obedience, because in the act of baptism, you are saying, I am not in sin anymore, but I am in Jesus Christ because of what he has done for me. And I'm part of his family. And in that, I get to come and feast with his family. Or if you're not part of, if you are not in Christ Jesus by faith, We are praying for you today 
that in seeing Jesus in the scriptures and in the elements, you would come to see that, yes, sin has nothing for me, and I can do nothing on my own. But in Christ Jesus, he has done everything. And because of that, I can come to know the salvation that's found in God and in him alone. So we are praying for you. Uh, As we distribute the elements in just a moment, we'd ask you to hang on to those elements, and we'll partake after we pray when the men have come forward. So, men, if you will come forward to distribute the elements. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Let's take and eat. Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you have sent your Son. In love for sinners and for those who have rebelled against you, an offense that is infinite and incomprehensible to us because we just cannot fathom how holy you are. You loved us and sent your son to take upon himself the wrath, the punishment that we deserved so that in Christ Jesus we could enjoy the blessing that only he has ever deserved, that we could know forgiveness and cleansing and pardon from all of our sin. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would give up your body to be broken on our behalf to go to the cross, to have upon it cast all of our sin and all of our shame. We thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Psalm 32, verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And seeing our sin, as our sin is before us, how can we be people who would be rejoicing and shouting for joy? It's because... For those who are in Christ Jesus, we no longer live under the condemnation that we justly deserve, but rather what surrounds us and will always surround us, and there's never a point in time where it will not surround us, are the shouts of deliverance that speak of the salvation and redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. We are surrounded and will always be surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord. For those who are in Christ Jesus... That is where we stand and where we live and where we walk all of our days because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the blood that he poured out on our behalf. So let's take and drink together. Most holy God, we thank you for sending your son. Jesus, we thank you that you would go to the point of death uh, be obedient to the, to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, that you would endure the cross despising the shame that you would carry with you and that would be put upon you, but for the joy that was set before you in redeeming a people in obedience to the Father, you endure the cross. So we now no longer know sorrows and unending sorrows, but now what we know are the glad shouts of deliverance, of salvation and redemption that are found in you. Now what we know is the steadfast love of the Lord because you, Lord Jesus, have poured out your blood for our sins and the work that you have done and accomplished for us is sufficient. So we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray.